Welcome to Footsteps of the Fallen, a Great War podcast with me, battlefield researcher, historian and writer, Matt Dixon. For the last 30 years, I've been visiting the cemeteries, memorials and battlefields of the First World War. And in this series of podcasts, I'd like to take you on a journey through France, Belgium and further afield and tell you the stories of some of the places I visited and the stories of the men who lie as the dead of the Great War. So pack up your kit bag and join me as we walk the well-trodden paths on the battlefields, following in the footsteps of the fallen. It's a pleasure to have your company. So welcome to this latest episode of Footsteps of the Fallen. And uh, for those of you who are our regular listeners, welcome back. We are uh, our first podcast after our short uh, summer break. And if you're one of our new listeners, of which there have been many, many over the last few weeks, it's uh, a pleasure to have you with us. And I hope you enjoy this latest installment. Uh, I apologize for the uh, sort of unscheduled summer break. Sometimes uh, life just happens and life gets in the way. And as much as I enjoy recording this podcast and it really is something that I look uh, forward to very much each week to sit down and uh, record another episode um life gets in the way sometimes and I think also it is a uh, it's a very time consuming thing to do as I say I don't begrudge that time at all because it's something as I've said that I enjoy incredibly but uh, I think sometimes with uh, life and with children and school holidays and things like that sometimes you just need to press the reset button and uh, have a, a little break just to kind of uh, refocus and uh, kind of recharge and that's what we've done we're back now this is our 91st episode we're on the home run towards the end of season four I'm very lo- much looking forward to recording the next 10 episodes which is going to take us up to our uh, milestone of our 100 podcast something I'm uh, very much looking forward to and as I say it's lovely to be back behind the microphone again to be recording another podcast for you to listen to. So I had a lovely couple of weeks away in uh, France, and uh, it may not come as a great surprise to you that they managed to fit some uh, World War One-related activity uh, into the time that we were away. I had a, a week in the uh, Loire Valley with family, which was a really, really super lovely place, a, a lovely part of France. Uh, not an area that I know very well, but uh, a real pleasure to sort of uh, go around there. I had an enjoyable visit to the uh, the Brocante, the local flea market. I was thinking of uh, Gary from Calais whilst I was there, who's uh, the resident Brocante expert. And and um, it was really, really interesting, actually. It's sort of like a giant flea market on the town square. And I was rummaging around on uh, one of the stalls, and I came across these two magnificent, huge, about a 3 size leather bound books. And they were a collection of um, hundreds and hundreds of photographs of the Great War that were published originally at the time by the uh, the Parisian magazine L'Illustration. And in the 1920s, what they decided to do was put together a collection of all of the images that they published throughout the Great War. And it's absolutely fascinating to look at them. It's a, it's a very um, surprisingly, I suppose, in one sense for a French magazine, there's actually a very wide cross-section of images. There's obviously a lot uh, relating to the French army, but there's also uh, many, many photographs relating to the uh, the British and, uh, and the uh, Canadian. Canadians and the Australians and South Africans, etc. So it was a, a real uh, bargain, actually. Um, I managed to pick up both of these books up for uh, a snip, I think, at about 40 uh, euros each. Uh, it, sorry, 40 euros rather for the two of them, which uh, I was very, very pleased with. I mean, they weigh a ton and uh, it didn't do the suspension of my car much good when we were lumping them around at France. But um, what's quite remarkable, actually, is uh, not only did you pick up these magnificent books with these incredible photographs in them, but when I was uh, having a look through it in the evening, I opened up the uh, cover of well, the second volume and out fell a large collection of uh, first edition uh, stamps that relate to the French uh, Antarctic uh, mission. But um, the stamps themselves are sort of uh, faultless uh, proofs. They are um, uh, marked, uh, but they're also uh, all attached to these uh, rather splendid uh, watercolour paintings that uh, are really quite spectacular. And I think uh, I can only assume that the person who selling the books didn't actually know that they were in the book themselves. So it's a bit of a, an added uh, bonus, really. And uh, if there are, is there anyone out there who's uh, listening who's an expert on French stamps, if you could uh, possibly give me uh, a shout that would be really really helpful the place that we were staying at in france uh, say it was at the sort of top of the loire valley so a long long way behind the scenes of the fighting in the uh, in on the western front but uh, of course like uh, all french villages a rather splendid war memorial in the uh, the main church which is uh, located on the on the town uh, square it's uh, dominated by this very impressive marble carved french 
Poilu's helmet. And quite unusually, actually, something I haven't seen before for a French war memorial, the names were listed uh, by year of uh, death rather than in just sort of alphabetical order. And what was really interesting when you looked at um, the the sort of the spread of names, um, 19... 19- 14 and 1915 actually had by far the most number of casualties in it and it's obviously reflective of the uh, the horrible toll that the French army paid at the beginning of the uh, Great War. And it was something that I was going to actually uh, look at in a little bit more uh, detail in a podcast uh, later in this series. We're going to have a look at the, the Battle of the Frontiers. But it was a, a very impressive war memorial. It was interesting uh, to see it. And uh, obviously, the, one of the things I always do when I look at these memorials is see if there are uh, similar surnames. And there were quite a few who may very well have been uh, either brothers or perhaps father and son or uh, or that sort of thing. And uh, having had a week on the Loire, we went up to um, uh, the Ain, And they say this was a, an, another Parts of the Western Front that I, I have uh, been to before, but didn't really know very well. I managed to get um, my passport stamp for an afternoon and go and have a, a, a jaunt around the battlefields, visit some of the cemeteries. And uh, for that, uh, my wife, I'm very grateful for uh, giving me time off for good behaviour, as it were. And it was a really, really fascinating uh, part of the battlefield. As I say, it's somewhere that I have been to uh, only very uh, briefly before. So it was really nice to sort of spend a day out there and uh, go around some of the cemeteries. As, as uh, was to be expected, I didn't see enough other person in any of the cemeteries I went to in the whole time that I was there. I'm actually I quite like that because I'm a bit antisocial on the uh, on the battlefields. But it, it was very very interesting indeed, um, and I was very pleased to pay a visit to the uh, the Soissons Memorial and a uh, very very interesting uh, sort of a remarkable sculpture on there of uh, of uh, three uh, soldiers, and it's sort of quite incongruous actually the sculpting because they're in a great sort of contrast. And the sculptures actually look very very modern against this uh, memorial that has the names of uh, four thousand officers and men who died in this uh, part of the Western Front and whose uh, bodies were never found. Um, one of the things that I am going to do later on in this season before we finish is I'm actually going to do a podcast about the um, journey that I did around some of the uh, the cemeteries on the AIM because they were really, really, really interesting. And um, there were, um, in the area, we were staying a large number of hugely impressive French cemeteries just by the sheer scale of them. And I went to uh, one of uh, the cemeteries, I think it was at a place called Ablonay, it had uh, almost 11 thousand graves in there and the vast majority of these were men who died in the fighting in 1914 and it sort of piqued my interest really about uh it's going to do a podcast about the sort of the french army experience at the beginning of the war about what happened and uh and that sort of thing and um i'd also had a very very enjoyable trip with my uh, son to the armistice carriage at uh, compiègne of course it's not the uh carriage that the armistice was actually signed in that was destroyed by uh, Hitler in 1940, but it is a carriage from the same set that the uh, original one came from. Uh, it's got a, a superb museum with it. Very, very good indeed. Very interesting. And uh, my son thoroughly enjoyed it. And certainly from a, a sort of World War One perspective, to be standing at the place where such a monumentous events took place and then to understand sort of the history behind it as to what happened um, some sort of 20 two years later it's uh, it's a remarkable place if you ever get the chance to go please go and have a visit it's it's fascinating and so this uh, really superb museum there it's uh, not very big but it's very very uh, comprehensive and very well done and a, a very very enjoyable day for me, however, the absolute highlight of our uh, trip on the way back to uh, the channel was uh, the uh, visit that we paid to Vimy Ridge. And in September 1987, my father took me to my first ever Commonwealth War Cemetery, which was Canadian Cemetery Number 2 at Vimy Ridge. And it was that visit, really, that uh, sowed the uh, the seed in me of, uh, of this interest in this fascinating and this wonderful subject of history. And what, for me, was the real highlight and the real privilege was that um, we stopped at the Ridge and visited the memorial. And then I took my son to his first Commonwealth War Cemetery, which was Canadian Cemetery Number 2. And it's very very difficult to for me to put into words quite what that meant to me it was an incredibly emotional experience to to introduce my son to uh, the same cemetery that was the first one that I went to all those 
years ago and it was just uh, for me it was so important to have that kind of that uh, reconnection and I hope uh, maybe it's instilled a, an interest in my son that will continue to grow it may not I don't know we'll have to to see he's uh, he's still quite young but um, he, I think he understood the importance of what we were doing and, and I think it uh, it did affect him there was that was uh, quite clear and I think it's just uh, it was that sort of reconnection with the past that history that keeps dragging us back to the battlefields to the old front line to visit these places time and time again and every time one visits one picks up something new one learns something new and one gets a new feeling but so one of the things that really sort of reminded me I haven't been to Vimy for quite a long time was the sheer scale of the uh, the the shell craters and the um, uh, the sort of uh, visible tangible reminders of the power of artillery that still litter the Memorial Park itself. It's been very, very well done. I think the Canadians actually do do a very good war memorial. But uh, Vimy in itself is such a special place to the nation of Canada, and it's been so well done, as I say, with these sort of the preserved uh, trenches, but above all, just the cratered uh, landscape. And as I say, it's just this incredibly powerful and it's almost like visceral reminder of the ferocity of the fighting that took place in this part of France, particularly in uh, 1917. And whilst one can visit many uh, places around the Western Front where there are sort of, um, you know, reminders of the battlefield, um, age has sort of uh, tempered them and mellowed them. And I think one loses some sense of the kind of the scale. And I don't find that at Vimy. I think it's just as impressive now, almost over 100 years later, as um, it must have been at the time in terms of just the, the, the sheer spread of uh, the shell craters and the scale of the destruction. And it's to Vimy Ridge that we're going to head in today's podcast. And we're not actually going to look at the assault itself, but rather we're going to look at the events of the month that led up to the capture of the ridge by the Canadians on the 9th of April 1917, because it was a remarkable period for both uh, sides, both the Canadians and the Germans. The Canadians suffered appallingly heavy losses in the um, lead up to the, uh, the the capture of the ridge through a series of disastrous uh, trench raids, particularly one that took place on the 1st of March, which is one we're going to look at. But we're also going to look at the German experience of being on the ridge and suffering this enormous Canadian artillery barrage that landed on the ridge and pulverised the German defences in the run-up to the attack itself. And it was, for many soldiers of the German army, one of the most uh, tortuous, most awful experiences that they had in the Great War. We're going to look at a remarkable uh, document that I was sent from the German archives, which was written by a German soldier some 15 years after the war ended. And this was a man who had served at Ypres. Uh, He'd also served at Verdun, but he described the week he spent on Vimy Ridge before the Canadian assault being shelled as the worst week he experienced in the whole of the war. And the Germans came to know this week as Die Leidenswoch, or the week of suffering. The ridge at Vimy was a, a hugely significant point, both uh, tactically and militarily, on the Western Front. And as one uh, travels uh, south from Calais down the A26 uh, motorway, one uh, one of the things that strikes one when it looks around the, the pretty grim countryside around there is that it is almost like billiards table uh, flat, and it's something that we've talked about an awful lot in this podcast. But as one comes uh, down uh, from, uh, say, south from uh, Calais, one uh, starts to see the sort of um, the ground begins to sort of slowly creep upwards as uh, as one heads uh, down towards the south as one reaches uh, near to Vimy Ridge itself and the, the battle uh, to take Vimy Ridge was part of what was called the the battle of Arras and this took place in in uh, April uh, 1917 and the main belligerents to to capture the ridge were uh, were four divisions of the Canadian Corps who were part of the uh, the British first uh, army and um as i say the attack itself began on uh, the 9th of April which was uh, Easter Sunday and the main sort of uh, thinking behind the battle itself was to try to uh, detract, uh, sorry, attract uh, German reserves away from the massive uh, French offensive that was going to take place uh, a few days later down on the uh, uh, on the Aisne and uh, the Chemin des Dames, what has become known as the Nivelle 
offensive. And uh, of course, this was a, a very dark uh, period in French military history when the French army started to uh, mutiny on account of the uh, the losses. And it's uh, something we're actually going to look at in the podcast later on in this season about uh, the, the Nivelle offensive and what went wrong. But the idea really, as I say, was to kind of pin down uh, German troops in the uh, sector around Vimy and prevent them from being sent down to reinforce uh, German units further south and uh, hopefully allow the French uh, unhindered uh, progress against the uh, Germans in this uh, particular part of the line. And the the plan for Vimy was uh, really quite um quite simple in its in its idea but like all the uh, great war plans uh, the ideas are simple putting them into practice is something else and really what the canadian corps were tasked with doing was to capture the high ground of vimy ridge itself and uh, vimy ridge is a sort of a, a, an escarpment of land that runs uh, across to the uh, the northeast of the city of Arras. And from its western side, as you come down from sort of Calais, that direction, it climbs uh, very, very gently. And then when it gets to the the crest of the ridge, it actually drops quite steeply down onto what was called the Douai Plain. And if you uh, had the uh, ridge itself, it was only about uh, 145 metres above sea level, about sort of uh, 450 odd feet or something like that and what it did was it provided the uh, the most fantastic uh, observation over dozens and dozens of kilometers in all directions so obviously it was a it was a, a feature that was a, a real of uh, benefit to uh, either side whoever held it at the time the germans had actually held the ridge at vimy since October 1914 when they captured it first of all as the part of what became known as the uh, the race to the sea when each side was trying to sort of outflank each other make uh, their way up towards the uh, the channel coast and um, as I say the Germans took Vimy Ridge in October uh, 1914 and this was a feature that had sort of been a thorn in the side of the Allies really throughout 1914, 1915 and into 1916. The French had made numerous attempts to try and uh, recapture uh, Vimy Ridge each one of them had been uh, pretty much, uh, I think, disastrous would be probably the best way to describe these sort of uh, French assaults that had taken place. They they tried, first of all, in 1915, in uh, in May 1915, when uh, the British were fighting up at, uh, at Aubers and, and Festubert, uh, when the French uh, 10th Army tried to uh, take uh, Vimy Ridge and uh, and the uh, feature at Notre Dame de Lorette, where now stands the, the magnificent French uh, National Memorial. And um, they did actually have a little bit of success. There were men from the Moroccan division, so the Zouaves, the French colonial troops from North Africa, who did actually manage to uh, to capture the top of the ridge, but unfortunately they weren't able to uh, hold it. And um, there is standing at Vimy Ridge now in the actual memorial park itself, a a splendid memorial to the uh, men of the Moroccan division and um, their um, achievement uh, of uh, of getting to the crest of the ridge. But unfortunately they weren't able to um, hold it. And um, the French then made another attempt attempt in September when the fighting at Luce was going on in uh, what was known as the, the Third Battle of Artois. And this was, once again, a, a complete failure. They did manage to capture the village of uh, Suchet, which uh, sits uh, down at the sort of like the western kind of end of the ridge itself. But after this sort of uh, attempt to uh, to take it, uh, the, the sector was relatively quiet. And of course, that's always something that we take with a pinch of salt when we're looking at any part of the Western Front, because there was no such thing really as a truly quiet sector. But what the uh, belligerents on both sides do after the sort of the, the heavy fighting that take place was uh, they adopted a, this kind of a doctrine of uh, what was known as live and let live, where there were no sort of major actions or major offensives. And um, it was generally regarded to say throughout kind of 1960, as a relatively sort of quiet, uh, sorry, from the end of 1915, rather, sort of relatively uh, quiet uh, sector if there um, if there was such a thing. But really to sort of give uh, some kind of picture on the scale of what, of what the French suffered, they lost almost 150,000 men throughout 1915 in trying to unsuccessfully capture uh, the ridge. So, I mean, it really was, as I say, a, a hugely significant uh, obstacle that had been um, defended uh, by almost sort of like fanatical um, idealism with um, incredibly strong defences by the Germans. And uh, this is something that we talk about a lot in this podcast, is this this mastery of uh, using the terrain to their advantages. And there were a few places actually on the Western Front, I think the Germans did this as well, as they had done at Vimy. The British were, I suppose not to say, introduced to Vimy Ridge in the spring of uh, 1916. And uh, this came about when the Germans launched the offensive at uh, Verdun and the French 
10th Army was uh, rushed over to the east of France and um, sort of command of this uh, part of the line was handed over to the British uh, 17th Corps, who were commanded at that time by a man called Lieutenant General Sir Julian Bing. And um, one of the things that was quite sort of alarming, I think, that the British uh, discovered was that um, not only did they sort of take over these trenches, but there's been this kind of live and let live routine. And the trenches were uh, in a very, very poor state of um, what the British said, a very poor state of repair. There was a huge numbers of dead bodies that were lying sort of unburied from the previous uh, winter. But one of the things that the uh, the British discovered was that the that the Germans had uh, been undertaking a huge and extensive programming of uh, of mining and tunnelling under the uh, the ridge itself. The, uh, the the sort of geology of the ridge made an ideal location for um, tunnelling. And what they'd done is the Germans had built this huge network of, uh, of tunnels under the ridge and these very deep mines. And what they were planning on doing was sort of exploding uh, huge charges under the uh, the French trenches and destroying them and then using this to their advantage to sort of drive the French uh, out of this part of the line. And what the um, the British did is they, they called on the Royal Engineers to send in uh, specialist companies of miners to sort of produce these kind of counter mines and uh, counter tunnels um, to sort of fight against the kind of the German mining operations. And this kind of coincided with a sort of a, a, an increase in uh, German artillery and um, trench raiding activity and this was a sort of precursor to an enormous uh, attack that took place on the 20 20- 1st of May in 1916 when the Germans attacked the uh, the British along a, a front. I think it was about uh, about 1,500 metres or so. And what they were trying to do was uh, really kick the British off uh, Vimy Ridge. And uh, what the Germans managed to do during this attack was they captured uh, lots and lots of tunnels and mine craters that had blown by the British. And then they sort of halted and you built this kind of new defensive sort of position you, making uh, advantage of the uh, the mine craters and the kind of the, the geography that uh, this uh, created. When I first began looking at the Battle of Vimy, one of the things that particularly impressed me was the the level of uh, sort of preparation and planning and detail that the core commanders went into to launch the assault, and I think it's uh, on a par with the preparation, certainly for the uh, the Messines offensive, in terms of the uh, the sort of the thoroughness and the the amazing uh, sort of level of detail that uh, people went into. But the um the sort of the genesis really of the the attack on Vimy Ridge actually came from uh, French successes at the Battle of Verdun in uh, 1916, where um Robert Nivelle became sort of like the hero of Verdun had um produced some sort of notable successes. Uh, Successes in the, in the fighting at uh, Verdun, where they'd driven the Germans off and uh, captured uh, large amounts of land that had been lost. And um, what the uh, the French did, sort of riding high on this uh, kind of success, was they um, produced a, a a number of sort of like training conferences where they uh, outlined the uh, lessons that they'd learned from the fighting at uh, Verdun. And um, a number of uh, senior Canadian officers attended these planning conferences. And I think um, it would be fair to say we're probably very impressed by. Um, what they heard about the French tactics. And when the ridge at Vimy had been decided as being an objective for the Canadians as part of the Battle of Arras, the planning that was uh, put into place was largely dominated, I think it would be fair to say, by the, uh, the sort of tactical and strategic uh, lessons that the uh, Canadian commanders had heard at these sort of French um, sort of instructional kind of seminars and that sort of thing. Um, and one of the things that um, became uh, apparent was that the uh, the Canadian called the, sc- the scale of what they were being asked to do was probably beyond the ability of what they had in terms of uh, the resources. So it was decided that the uh, the Canadian uh, assault was going to be helped by the uh, the British 5th Division and they would have uh, the British uh, artillery, engineering and, and the Labour Corps and things like that. And um, what it uh, meant was that when the attack went into Vimy Ridge, there were almost 170,000 men involved in it, of whom uh, about, uh, I think it was about 100,000 of them were uh, Canadians, but it was going to be the first time that all four Canadian divisions had fought together on the Western Front. Once these uh, resources had been confirmed, the kind of the planning was put together, and the plan itself was actually really quite uh, simple. What the um, commanders uh, decided to do was that the uh, advance of the Canadians was going to be uh, measured by uh, four different uh, coloured objective uh, lines. And the, the, the battle itself was going to be fought on a, on a front of edge of about 6,000, 7,000 metres, something like that. And at the middle of the Canadian assault was going to be opposite the village of Vimy, which sat on the uh, the eastern 
uh, side of the ridge. And the first uh, objective that the Canadians had to capture was called the Black uh, Line, and this was the, the German forward defensive position and then the the final objection of the objective rather of the northern part of the Canadian attack was what was called the red line which was the highest um, point of the ridge and there was also a significant sort of battlefield uh, landmark it was this kind of a smaller knoll a fortified knoll of trees it was known as as the pimple and uh, that had to be captured as well as uh, the German strong point at La Folie farm which was a, a fortified farmstead that stood on on the battlefield and um what was called the Zwischenstellung or the, or the intermediate uh, position as well as the hamlet of Lake Tilloy. And it was a quite an ambitious sort of plan, really, but um, infinitely uh, achievable because the attack was going to go in on sort of two fronts, a northern and a southern front. And in the south, uh, two divisions um, obviously were going to be fighting uh, the same as, as the northern sector, but they had an additional objective as well, which was uh, what was called the Blue Line. And this uh, in, this included a, a village called uh, Telus and um, the large number of sort of woods and copses of trees that were uh, kind of around the village of, of Vimy. And then the final objective for them was uh, what was called the Brown Line, and this involved capturing a, a German trench that was called the Zwollengraben, or the, the 12 uh, trench, and then the the German uh, second line. And one of the things that the Canadians were sort of like very impressed with the with the French plans that had been taken for Verdun was the way that the French had used artillery, and um, they intended to sort of change the approach that they used to uh, attacking with uh, artillery. They were going to be used what was called a, a creeping uh, barrage, which is where the uh, artillery lifted at a, a set time and went forward by sort of about 100 metres uh, at a time. And what this meant was that the infantry could follow as closely as possible uh, behind it. It would give them cover from sort of uh, Germans who happened to come up into the trenches uh, ahead of them. And what the uh, Canadian plan sort of entailed was that men would kind of, the units would leapfrog over each other. So one unit would take one objective and then the unit behind it would go through and take the next one and the first unit would have the opportunity to kind of sort of rest and recuperate for a little while and um, it kind of in theory it was a very very good idea but um, of course any uh, any plan is only as good as the first contact that you have with the enemy but the the Canadians I think were very very optimistic and it was a very well sort of like developed and devised plan and what the um, what the planners uh, estimated was that if the Canadian course stuck to the schedule that had been devised for them then actually by one o'clock in the afternoon they should actually have the majority of Vimy Ridge under their control. What I would say at this uh, juncture is if you're interested in uh, the the Battle of Vimy Ridge, then uh, from my point of view, I think one of the books that I would definitely recommend reading is uh, simply called Vimy. And it's written by uh, a man by the name of Pierre Berton. Now, there's been a lot of very good uh, books written about Vimy, but for me, I think uh, Berton's is the absolute standout. Uh, one of it. I think one of the things that struck me when I read it is it is meticulously researched and it's um, incredibly uh, detailed and well written about the kind of the preparations uh, for the assault. So, yeah, I highly recommend it. So, there are lots and lots of books being written about Vimy, but for me, I think Berton's one uh, particularly uh, stands uh, out. So, if you get a chance, you find it on Amazon. Uh, do have a look. I'd uh, highly recommend it. One of the things that the the Canadian officers who'd been at this sort of French uh, masterclass about Verdun had realised was that the artillery that was going to be needed to for a successful assault on the ridge was beyond that which would normally be allocated to a, a sort of core for a, an operation of this size. So uh, what the, uh, the the planners did is they assembled a concentration of artillery that even by uh, sort of great war standards was absolutely uh, incredible. And the Canadians, when they went into action, had probably three times or something like that about the number of artillery that one would normally uh, have allocated to a, um, a an operation of this type. And I think I remember reading a, a statistic somewhere that there was a one heavy gun for I think every about twenty or twenty five meters of the of the front, and one field gun for every. 10 metres of core frontage. And uh, one of the other things as well that they had was a huge supply of shells. And when you read the sort of the uh, the plans in uh, war diaries and things like that about the, the planning, there was um, almost uh, an artillery allocation of almost 1.7 
million shells that have been allocated to this, just uh, an incredibly uh, huge uh, number. And of course, one of the things that we've uh, talked about quite a lot in this podcast, uh, and uh, when we looked at sort of earlier battles in the Great War, was that um, having a huge concentration of artillery is one thing, but the problems caused by the the dud and duff ammunition was another. And what the Canadians were uh, very conscious of, I think they were very aware of this, and there'd been sort of technological advances. And one of the most important things that had been developed was what was called the 106 fuse. And this was a a much more efficient uh, type of fuse that was fitted onto shells. And what it did is it caused the shell to burst at the slightest contact of the uh, the front of the shell with uh, any kind of uh, object. And uh, what this did is it made that the shells were much, much more uh, effective, much more efficient than they'd been before. And uh, they were equally, um, even more impressive, rather, at uh, cutting uh, German barbed wire, which, of course, when you think of the defences that were on top of the ridge, um, was uh, something that was, I think, undoubtedly uh, uh, very, very useful indeed and um the the 106 i think certainly was a great development in the uh in the role of artillery and certainly um i'm sure paid uh, quite an important part in the uh, the canadian success that came in capturing the ridge itself one of the uh, activities that kind of came to uh, characterise this part of the front was uh, trench raiding. And the Canadians who held this part of the line sort of uh, developed this kind of into almost uh, an art form. And it became this sort of a kind of uh, unofficial, I suppose one would say almost like sport between the different regiments as to who could uh, launch the most uh, successful raid. And I suppose we could sort of capture the most prisoners, get the most information and, uh, and that kind of thing. And um, I mean, the Canadians, this was something that they did incredibly aggressively in the um, in the lead up to the assault I mean in the four months before the uh, Battle of Arras began uh, the I think the Canadians launched uh, I think it was 55 separate uh, trench rows so approximately one every sort of two days and this could vary anywhere from just a, a few men up to uh, possibly even like sort of a whole company so kind of 250 uh, men or, or something like that and we are very fortunate um, that there are a number of sort of accounts as to what uh, happened in these raids and one of these comes from uh, a German soldier who was present on Vimy Ridge. Uh, his name was uh, Hermann Kraft and he was uh, 17 years old and he recorded uh, the uh, following and uh, what I will do is I just apologise for some of the terminology that's uh, used in this but I will um, read it exactly as it's written. We were lying on our bunks, which were swaying with a concussion of shells. Suddenly our electric lights went out and we lit candles. Our sergeant orders us up the stairs, himself going first. Suddenly he yells, Tommies! And he fell back dead, tumbling down the steps. We all panicked and ran into the cave and threw ourselves down with our arms over our heads, fearing a bomb at any second. Then one of our old hands, he was twenty-two, came down the steps and told us to abandon our weapons and come up the steps one at a time as the position was hopeless. The English were all over us. I walked up the steps behind a corporal who was very defiant and he spat on the floor when he reached the exit. But this did him no good, for he was hit over the head by a huge Tommy who was brandishing a baseball bat. I covered my head with my hands and closed my eyes expecting the same, but the blow did not come. Perhaps it was because I was so young. Looking at the soldiers, I noticed that they all had their faces blackened. I was prodded in the stomach by one with a bayonet and told to keep my hands on my head. One of the soldiers wore no helmet, and he had no hair apart from a line running across the top of his head. He also had white and red paint on his face and was terrifying to look at. I then realised that he was a Red Indian and our captors were Canadians. There were many uh, can indigenous Canadians who served in the Canadian military during the Great War, and uh, they developed a, a sort of very kind of fearsome uh, reputation for themselves. They were excellent soldiers and uh, loved uh, nothing more than a good uh, uh, scrap. And I remember reading something about uh, that a British officer uh, wrote about having to uh, work with some uh, indigenous uh, Canadians. And he said that uh, one of the problems was that they, they had a, a sort of a, a sort of lack of respect for military discipline. But he did say that if he was in a, a fight, there was nobody that he'd rather have uh, on his side than uh, the, the indigenous uh, Canadian soldiers. And uh, one of these uh, soldiers um, was one of the absolute legends of 
the First World War. His name was Henry Norwest, and he was a, an indigenous Canadian. He was part of the Cree tribe, and he became one of the most feared snipers anywhere on the uh, Western Front. And he had a remarkable tally of um, 115 confirmed kills during uh, the Great War. He was awarded uh, a military medal um, and bar for his exploits. And he was one of these men, a bit like, uh, he always reminds me when I hear his story, it reminds me a little bit of uh, of uh, Dick uh, Travis, the King of No Man's Land, who we covered in, a, in an earlier podcast, uh, one of my uh, heroes. And he was a man who was really at his happiest when he was in the most dangerous place of all out in No Man's Land, sort of stalking uh, the enemy and uh, that sort of thing. And uh, Norwest has gone on to become something of a, of a legend in sort of the realms of Canadian military history. He was born in 1884 in uh, a place called uh, Fort Saskatchewan, which is in, uh, I think it's a uh, current uh, present day uh, Alberta. And he was a young man who had a very, very tough uh, upbringing. His uh, his uh, father wasn't present. He was brought up by his mother, one of three children. And like so many of the uh, indigenous population, they had a very, very tough lot from the uh, the Canadian uh, government. They were a very sort of a mobile kind of community. They moved around Alberta a lot. And um, they uh, still sort of partook of the traditional activities of uh, hunting and trapping and, and logging and, uh, and that sort of thing. Um, but there's... Um, some sort of dispute happened between Norwest's uh, family and uh, they ended up uh, having to move from uh, their uh, sort of traditional area of, uh, of land holding and they ended up on the uh, the north side of the Saskatchewan River at a place called St Albert and um, what uh, happened then was that uh, they found that they weren't able to claim the uh, land that um, they were on and this led uh, Norwest's mother to uh, claim what was called a scrip and this was a, a, a certificate that was issued by the Canadian government um, to Indigenous people who um, had uh, effectively sort of extinguished their land rights um, in exchange for a, a one-time payment um, or, or a kind of plot of land. And the problem um, was that when uh, his mother did this, she received only $240 of a, of a kind of a lump sum payment. And this, of course, was, was a, a sort of paltry amount of money given that it was required to support three young children. And um, as I say, Norwest had a very, very tough um, upbringing, but um, he spent a lot of his life, um, like so many of uh, his compatriots, um, outdoors, a very tough, tough man. And this obviously, I think, would have suited him very, very well when he sort of found his way into the Canadian um, military. And what we don't know very much about what happened to him between the sort of the 1890s and the beginning of the war, except that he um, was involved in a relationship with somebody, he had a number of children, I think he had five children in total, but then he his work was sort of a, this kind of typically kind of backbreaking manual labour that was uh, so often done by uh, men. It was farming, it was ranching, it was um, hunting, and um, and that sort of thing. And I think there's no question whatsoever that it was this uh, this outdoor life, and particularly the skills of hunting and trapping, that kind of honed Norwest skills as a as a sniper and as a, as a marksman when he found himself on the battlefields of uh, France and Belgium. It wasn't until January of 1915 that Norwest enlisted into the uh, army. He joined um, uh, a mounted rifles unit. But it, uh, interestingly enough, he actually enlisted under a false name. He gave the name Henry Louis. And it's, um, it didn't really, his military career didn't get off to the most auspicious of starts. He was actually uh, discharged from the military in um, April 1915. I'm not quite sure the reason for that. I believe some sort of misdemeanor or, or something like that. And he worked for a, a few months as a, as a, uh, a police officer, a mounted police officer, before he was able to actually re-enlist um, in the uh, army in the, the, the 50th Battalion of Calgary. And when he re-enlisted in, in September 1915, he actually used his real name, uh, which obviously he hadn't done before. And the Italian was sent overseas the following month, but it was to be almost a year before Norwest actually made it over to the Western Front. They had a, a very long uh, period of training um, in England. And it was whilst uh, Norwest was stationed in England that he gained his nickname of uh, Ducky. And this is what he was universally known as. And I've seen a couple of um, variations as to how the nickname came along. But the uh, most commonly um, sort of, I think, accepted one was that um, he was nicknamed Ducky because he was a very, very shy individual. Um, but he was quite a handsome man and was a bit of a hit with the uh, the ladies when the uh, Canadians were in England. But he um, reportedly sort of ducked out of uh, any sort of encounter that he 
uh, may have found himself in with any of these ladies and the name Ducky sort of stuck with him and was to remain with him for the rest of his career. I have seen another version of that that uh, he was uh, quite well known for ducking out of paying for a round of drinks but um, that, uh, as I say, the thing about the young lady seems to be certainly the more um, commonly accepted version of how he uh, got his uh, nickname, which was to stick with him for the whole of his uh, service. Now, he was uh, he was described as being sort of um, quite uh, quite powerfully built, quite an intimidating-looking chap, but uh, he was very quiet and quite uh, reserved, and he was generally sort of, I think he was held in quite high esteem by his comrades. He was quite a nice man and very pleasant. Um, but one of the things that people noticed about him was that he had these incredibly dark, piercing eyes and there was a sort of seriousness and, and hardness about his eyes that uh, a lot of people who met him uh, remarked upon and uh, if you look at a picture of him he's quite a striking looking individual it wasn't long after he arrived on the battlefield that his reputation as an incredible marksman sort of uh, came to uh, fall uh, the men in uh, in the 50th battalion recognized that they had this sort of rare talent in in norwest amongst them he was an absolute expert at uh, sort of stealth and, and camouflage in no man's land and uh, one of the things that he, he demonstrated on more than one occasion was that he was a phenomenal shot using the uh, the, the Ross rifle which is the, the standard rifle that was issued to uh, Canadian troops and he first comes to attention in the battalion war diary in uh, April of 1917 where it's recorded that in one day he killed three German soldiers and one of his particular skills was actually uh, concealing himself literally on top of the German and trenches to the point that he could sort of hear conversations and see what was going on but they had absolutely no idea that he was there and he was a very uh, a very sort of aggressive in his approach I think it was probably the best way to describe it towards um, sniping I mean most snipers in the trenches would fire from their kind of uh, their own trenches they'd have kind of like metal uh, plates and metal loops built in the parapet that afforded them some protection but Norwest uh, sort of shunned this and he much preferred to actually go out into uh, no man's land and one of the things that uh, was remarkable was that he was an incredibly patient man. He once waited in a shell hole for almost two days to get a, a shot at a, a sniper, a German sniper, who'd been harassing his his uh, unit. And um, I say this sort of stealth that he obviously honed these skills. I think it's very obvious from his time as a tracker and a hunter in uh, in Canada. And um, I think they obviously put these to the kind of very good use um, on the battlefield itself. And his reputation, I say, as a sniper was kind of unparalleled. And he very soon quickly racked up... Um, over a hundred confirmed kills. I mean, in reality, it was, of course, probably much, much more than that, but these were certainly the ones that were kind of officially documented. And he was involved as part of the 50th Battalion in the fighting at Vimy Ridge in, in April 1917. And then he uh, went on in uh, later in uh, 1917 in the summer to fight up in uh, Ypres in uh, what became known as the, as the Battle of Passchendaele. And um, one of the things that um, sort of I think he had was this like, sort of fatalistic attitude that he knew that eventually some Something was going to happen, and he was going to lose his life. But he always uh, sort of rather blasé, rather casually said that it didn't really, uh, didn't really bother him very much at all. And he continued to rack up German targets. And his uh, final tally was a uh, hundred and fifteen confirmed kills, which is uh, absolutely remarkable. And his luck very sadly finally ran out in August of uh, 1918 when they were he was fighting at the battle of Amiens and uh, he uh, went out into no man's land and uh, he was obviously spotted by a german sniper because as he raised his rifle to his shoulder the german sniper shot him through the head and ducky Norwest luck sadly had finally run out. Um, what was uh, sort of quite interesting was that when he was buried on the battlefield his uh, comrades put a uh, a wooden cross on uh, sort of where he was buried and on the cross it read the legend it must have been a damn good sniper that got him and he ended up finally resting in uh, Warville Commonwealth Wargrave Cemetery and it's a, it's a lovely little cemetery actually and he's sort of a, a real kind of highlight of uh, any visit there is to go and see uh, his grave. We mentioned earlier in the podcast that one of the uh, activities that the Canadians became particularly proficient at in the run-up to uh, the attack on Vimy Ridge was uh, trench raids, and these were kind of uh, these were exercises that were much much uh, hated by uh, soldiers in the line. And the reason that these sort of raids took place was to kind of um, identify what the uh, Germans were doing with the uh, defences were opposite wherever the uh, Canadians were, see um, which uh, units were holding the line, and of course the uh, 
the idea of uh, of war itself is to capture or kill as many of the enemy as possible. And the kind of the uh, raids themselves, they varied in size. It could be anything from sort of like uh, just down to a kind of platoon strength, anything up to sort of several uh, companies of uh, infantry. And uh, the Canadians, we saw they they, were, they launched almost fifty five raids in the months that were leading up to the battle of Vimy Ridge, but it's the raid that took place on the 1st of March 1917 that's really kind of gone down in, I suppose infamy is probably the best way to describe it. I think whenever one reads any accounts of uh, trench raids and men that were involved with them, one of the things that strikes them is they were deeply, deeply violent uh, confrontations. This was uh, close quarters combat. Men carried uh, weapons with them that were designed uh, probably more uh, appropriate for carrying in a bar brawl than uh, one would perhaps expect on a on a battlefield. They had the, um, the sort of the we euphemistically called the sort of homemade trench weapons uh, persuaders, and wanted to take a great deal of imagination to kind of imagine um, how they would uh, be used. But one of the problems Problems that the uh, Canadians encountered was the, the sheer number of German dugouts that they came upon. And uh, they realised very quickly that simply throwing uh, Mills bombs, that the, the hand grenades down the um, uh, entrances uh, probably wouldn't uh, suffice. And uh, a lot of men would um, sort of survive the initial explosion and come up kind of fighting. So they decided that really that they had to do something a little bit more um, kind of uh, vigorous, I think is perhaps the best way to describe it. So they developed these uh, trench bombs that were uh, basically phosphorus bombs that were sort of taped to uh, the side of these kind of uh, four-litre tins of petrol that were attached uh, onto 20-pound charge of uh, Amonel explosives. And what would happen is that they'd be chucked down into the German dugouts, they'd explode, and uh, they'd fill the dugout with flame and smoke, whilst the uh, Amonel would cause this sort of entrance to the dugouts to um, collapse. And, and the problem was that you had to be very careful with the fuses. These There were a number of times where the Canadians actually blew themselves up because the fuses on these things weren't long enough. So they learned very quickly that you needed to uh, to kind of lengthen them. And this uh, they proved to be a very, very successful weapons. But even with this sort of um, extra um, sort of firepower and determination, sometimes these trench raids really didn't uh, go very well and German prisoners simply refused to sort of uh, come with the uh, raiding troops. And there's an account written by a man called uh, Albert Anderson, who was a company sergeant major in the Gordon Highlanders. And he recalled in his memoirs the following... On one particular raid I was in, I managed to get the shoulder straps naming the regiment from one of the German sentries. He refused to come back with us, so I had to put him out of action with my knife. It was the safest policy. We just killed them all. These trench raids almost became sort of matters of pride for the individual regiments. And there was this sort of attempt to kind of outdo um, others in terms of the scale of the raids that could be encountered and the sort of amount of damage that could be done and the destruction that could be uh, wreaked. And uh, the Canadians got very, very good at these trench raids. And I think they sort of got maybe a little bit overconfident because they started to plan um, what was going to be one of the most elaborate raids of the war to date. It was um, going to involve four battalions of uh, infantry. There was the the uh, second, 72nd, the 73rd, the 75th and the 54th uh, battalions, um, they were on the far uh, left-hand side of the uh, the Canadian line. They were facing uh, the highest uh, point of uh, Vimy Ridge, which is known as Hill 145, where the, where the uh, Canadian memorial currently stands to this um, uh, day. And it was what uh, was sort of euphemistically termed by the Canadians as a big show. There was going to be almost 1,700 uh, troops involved in this uh, in this trench raid. And um, one of the things that they was uh, quite interesting was that the Canadians were going to use a new type of poison gas that was going to be released uh, in the sort of run-up um, to the raid itself. And the first type of gas that they were going to use was a form of, uh, uh, of tear gas that was called uh, White Star. And then once the uh, tear gas had been released, they were then going to launch uh, chlorine uh, gas. And um, the as was so common, the, the gas cylinders were put up in the front-line trenches and the rubber hoses were then kind of laid out into um, uh, no man's land the taps were turned on and the raid itself was initially going to be planned for the end of February but the problem was that there was um, uh, real problems with the wind of course as uh, had been seen uh, so many times throughout the war when you're using gas you're entirely dependent on the uh, the wind direction which is something that you can't actually uh, control and it wasn't until the early hours of the uh, the first of March that the wind was deemed to be in an acceptable um, direction and at three o'clock in the morning the decision was made to launch um, the raid and so the Canadian uh, engineers opened the taps on these tear gas 
uh, cylinders and release this uh, white star uh, gas out into no man's land. The idea was that it was going to blow across to the German lines and would sort of um, penetrate not only into the trenches but down into the dugouts and that sort of thing. But the problem was that literally in the minutes before the um, uh, gas was launched and the attack had been given, the wind changed direction and inevitably what happened was the gas blew back into the Canadian lines and gassed many of the uh, Canadian soldiers who were um, uh, waiting to go into the attack and of course what this did is it's created this kind of total panic and total disorder and what this did was alerted the Germans that something was amiss so they uh, began to open fire on lines with uh, with rifle and uh, machine gun uh, uh, fire and uh, they then also um, sent uh, flares up in the air and German artillery launched and uh, what happened was that the, the artillery barrage caused uh, large numbers of the gas cylinders who were, that were in the frontline trenches to kind of explode and added really to the sort of chaos that was already uh, there. So not only had uh, men suffered from the, uh, the tear gas, but they then had the problems of chlorine gas going as well as this kind of incredible, uh, accurate, very, very heavy um, German uh, artillery bombardment and what the men had done to try and avoid the gas was that they kind of left the frontline trenches and they'd um, they'd gone either in front of or behind the frontline trench and attempted to try to get away from uh, from the uh, the poison gas. Um, but what happened was that the Germans spotted these large numbers of troops that were in the uh, in the kind of no man's land, either in front of or behind the Canadian lines, and they simply called sh- artillery down and shelled the men. And very very heavy casualties were were caused and. The raid itself was due to start at about half past five in the morning. And according to the plan, the British artillery opened uh, fire. But the problem was, was that um, many of the uh, the British shells uh, actually fell short. They missed the German wire and landed on top of the Canadians who were lying out in no man's land. So not only did they have the uh, the horror of German artillery, but they were also being shelled by the British uh, as well. And it was an absolute sort of nightmare for these men. And they um, obviously endeavoured to try and sort of push, um, uh, push their way forward and launch the attack um but uh, they were kind of mowed down by german machine gun fire and when they got uh, to the german wire what they found was that despite the use of sort of new fuses is that um, much of the barbed wire had been pulled up in the ground and was smashed but it hadn't been particularly well cut and of course men found themselves caught on this barbed wire and you've got this absolute sort of nightmarish situation of darkness with uh, with flares and machine guns and artillery and rifle fire and that sort of thing uh, it really must have been an absolutely awful experience for those canadian troops who found themselves caught up in it. But um, despite the sort of uh, the, the chaos, some men of the 72nd did actually manage to get through into the German frontline trench. And they found that actually there weren't very many German defenders there. And then um, what happened was reinforcements came up and this vicious hand-to-hand fighting kind of broke out. There was uh, fighting with grenades and, uh, as I say, these these persuaders, these homemade kind of trench weapons that the men carried with them. And it was sort of visceral, kind of almost medieval, I suppose, the, 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 the combat, kind of gladiatorial of man against man. And an um, absolutely uh, brutal experience for all those that were involved. It was very clear that the the Canadian sort of raid was uh, kind of falling into disarray. And on the fifty uh, fourth uh, Battalion's front, the men were doing their best to try to form up in uh, in no man's land of this German artillery fire. And it was a case that uh, somebody sort of really had to stand up and take the initiative. And it was the commanding officer of the fifty fourth Battalion, a man by the name of Lieutenant Colonel Arthur. Kemble, who took uh, control. Now, he was actually uh, an English officer. He'd served in the Indian Army and uh, he'd officially uh, retired four years before the uh, war began, but he had um, rejoined the army as uh, what was called uh, known as, as, as a dugout so uh, or, a, or a veteran. And um, what he was particularly concerned about, and I think, uh, you know, he's a very caring officer, but he was really concerned about what was happening to uh, uh, the Canadian troops. And he uh, decided that, um, you know, he needed to take the control. The, the operational orders were actually, in fact, that commanding officers were not to go out in front of the front line. They were to remain in the trenches, and he uh, ignored this. And um, very sadly, it was to uh, to cost him uh, his life, and his body was later found uh, hanging on the uh, the German uh, barbed wire at the front of his battalion. Things didn't go very much better for men of the 75th Battalion involved in this. When they got to the the German wire, what they uh, discovered was that the gaps that had been uh, cut uh, in the wire the the previous night by the artillery had had actually been booby-trapped by the Germans. They'd also been zeroed on these uh, gaps with a very, very accurate and very, very heavy uh, machine gun fire. And uh, there were many, many uh, casualties. It became very clear that, um, you know, they weren't going to be able to get through and the survivors sort of managed to kind of 
dragged themselves uh, uh, back towards their uh, frontline trenches. And um, certainly in this section of the, the raid, it was, it was an absolute uh, disaster from, uh, from kind of start to finish. When the attack of the 73rd and 75th failed, the uh, the men of the survivors sort of pulled their way back. But of course, what this did was it left the 72nd, who was still fighting their way into the uh, German trenches in this bombing attack, almost kind of cut um, off. And they suddenly realised that they were completely isolated and in danger of being uh, sort of overrun. So they took the decision to pull back and they fought their way um, out of the trenches and back to the Canadian lines. And by about 6.30 in the morning, the whole raid was over and uh, the participants had uh, kind of gone back to uh, where they'd uh, started. But the problem really came was that um, casualties had been so heavy that there were huge, uh, huge numbers of Canadian wounded who were lying out in uh, no man's land. And there's some very, very traumatic reports of men who were involved of hearing the cries of wounded soldiers coming in through the darkness and this sort of feeling of, of, I suppose I would say almost like helpless that there was nothing they could do. It must have been awful to hear your comrades and uh, begging for, for help and asking for uh, you to go out and rescue them. And the Canadians launched a number of attempts to actually go out and try and rescue um, men. There was um, uh, sort of, there were artillery bombardments came down to kind of protect them. But um, what um, happened was that the uh, Germans realised this and they opened artillery fire themselves. And many of the men who were lying wounded were actually killed by German artillery fire and also those men who um, went out to try and rescue them. And in this um, this sort of um, raid itself, the Canadians actually suffered 687 casualties. They lost two battalion commanders and, and many of the troops had actually been killed uh, by their own artillery. And I think what's really interesting to note actually is when you look at this, despite the sort of the scale of what was involved, the Germans actually suffered not a single um, casualty from the, uh, the gas itself. And um, they'd actually um, only lost... 37 men. So one could clearly say that the, the raid itself had been a, an absolute sort of a disaster for the, uh, for the Canadians. There were various other attempts were made to try and go out into uh, No Man's Land and rescue the wounded. But then on the morning of the 3rd of March, a very strange sort of incident occurred where um, Canadians who were in their front line saw three German officers who were walking across No Man's Land and they were carrying uh, red uh, cross uh, flags with them. And what um, agreed, uh, what happened was that um, the Germans agreed a sort of temporary ceasefire to allow the Canadians the opportunity to go out and uh, evacuate uh, their wounded and their dead out of uh, No Man's Land. And it's one of these sort of strange examples that one hears of sometimes during the war of these sort of like elements of a kind of humanity that uh, comes uh, about and it was agreed with the German commander that there would be an armistice from uh, midday um, until um, one o'clock so give the Canadians uh, an, an hour um, to um, go out and uh, collect as many of the wounded men as they could and then you had this sort of rather uh, sort of dignified uh, ceremony where um, the Germans removed the body of um, Arthur Kemble from the barbed wire and then uh, the Germans then and placed him on a stretcher and he was carried across no man's land by a German burial pot with this sort of great um, sort of dignity and great uh, sort of tenderness and I think it's a sort of uh, a recognition of the respect for Kemble's rank that he was treated with sort of uh, such a humility by the uh, German uh, soldiers and it uh, was reported that he uh, his, uh, his body was brought across with sort of real uh, real tenderness and uh, real respect and I suppose there's a sort of like slightly chivalrous kind of attitude towards it of this senior officer who uh, who paid the ultimate price in leading his uh, men uh, from the front the disaster of the 1st of March as it's uh, become known as uh, so sort of gone down in the annals of um, of Canadian military history and you know the the whilst uh, one can understand why these raids took place. One has to question the sort of like the overall um, the effectiveness of them and what they actually got from them in the um, the raids that took place on this section on this section of the Canadian line between the twenty second of March and the fifth of April. The Canadians lost seventy one officers and one thousand five hundred eighty two other ranks are either killed wounded or missing and one really I think has to as I question what is the the, the kind of the logic uh, behind this uh, of this kind of a sort of interregimental inter pride I absolutely understand but um, when you look at the scale of the casualties um, it, one really must question whether it was worth it or not and what uh, became uh, sort of apparent to the Canadians that they were planning to this uh, for the assault on Vimy Ridge was that they were going to have to be uh, incredibly reliant on the power of their artillery 
Surrey to have a kind of any success of uh, succeeding on the ridge itself. And as we've seen earlier, there was this huge concentration and huge build-up of um, uh, artillery uh, pieces. And uh, there was a, a, a supply of, uh, say, 1.6 million shells that were provided to the Allies to bombard the ridge. And when you stand at Vimy Ridge this day and see the the sort of uh, the shell-cratered wilderness that uh, still remains there to the day, you kind of wonder actually how it was possible for anybody to survive this, let alone uh, be able to fight at the end of it. And on relation to that subject, the artillery bombardment, say, that the Canadians put down prior to the uh, the attack on the ridge itself in the week before was one of the most intense that was launched throughout the whole of the First World War. When the artillery bombardment leading up to the assault began, tons and tons of explosive and shrapnel and gas shells fell on the German lines. And this was a, a bombardment that took place sort of uh, 24 hours a day, day and night. And uh, the shell fire was incredibly accurate. And what it meant was that those men who were on the ridge, it was impossible to uh, relieve them. And uh, the um, the new 106 shell fuse actually proved itself to be very, very useful because it uh, caused huge amounts of damage to the uh, German barbed wire. Not only did it destroy it for the attacking infantry, but it also turned it into a weapon that against the Germans themselves. And there were many, many casualties were caused by by these sort of red-hot, razor-sharp shards of barbed wire that were flying around in the air and flying into the German trenches and causing all sorts of problems for the uh, the German defenders. And to compound the misery, obviously the weather was terrible at the time. It was very cold. It was very wet. Uh, it was unseasonably cold for uh, Easter. There was no sign of, sort of spring at this moment in time. But the... Um, British artillery uh, put into practice a new technique that they were using, and it was called a Chinese barrage. And what this was, was a, what uh, I suppose we commonly know it as a kind of hurricane bombardment. So it was this hugely intense and very, very violent uh, bombardment when there would suddenly be this absolute uh, cessation of artillery fire. So this moment of calm and what this um, lulled the Germans into this uh, sort of false uh, belief was that an infantry attack was about to um, to come in so they would leave the shelter of their dugouts man the frontline trenches and then all of a sudden another barrage would drop on them of, of equal intensity and the remarkable thing about this is, is that it was a hugely effective ploy and it worked very very well against the Germans caused large numbers of, uh, of uh, casualties and it worked uh, repeatedly and it was a really sort of I say, incredibly miserable place for the German uh, defenders um, to be and not only were they sort of having these problems from uh, German artillery from British artillery of shrapnel and high explosives they were also being peppered with gas shells from uh, the Livins projectors the uh, sort of uh, these uh, kind of trench mortars that fired these very large gas canisters and what this did was it um, filled the trenches with gas and it would the, the gas would then sort of trickle down into the dugouts and um, would um, sort of silently kind of a silent killer really I suppose it would just sort of kind of uh, asphyxiate and kill the men who were in the uh, dugouts themselves and it was absolutely awful awful place to be and there were German soldiers that the experience they went through on Vimy Ridge that they gave the um, the week in the lead up to the battle of became known as the week of suffering and I'm very very fortunate that uh, I have a, a good uh, friend of mine who I've known for some time a chap called Andreas he lives over in uh, Germany works for uh, BMW but when he's not uh, designing car engines one of the things he is uh, particularly interested in is in uh, military uh, history and he shared with me a document that he found in uh, one of the state archives when he was uh, visiting and it was uh, a an account of what happened written by a German uh, soldier and it, the interesting thing um, is that the account was written in 1933, so 15 years after the war ended. And of course, uh, this was uh, such a you know, tumultuous time in uh, German politics. One wonders what uh, the uh, writer of this uh, document might have thought of the, the kind of the political changes that were going to uh, take place. But uh, say this, uh, the man himself was called Edvard Muller. And I'm going to read the uh, I'm going to read the uh, document that he wrote. It's quite long, but it's a remarkable piece of narrative. And say so from someone who was actually on uh, Vimy Ridge during this week. Even as I write this, some 15 years later, the memories of that week on Vimy Ridge weigh heavily on me. I saw many terrible things during my four years of fighting, and no matter how bad the situation, I always kept a glimmer of hope in the back of my mind that I might survive. That week on the ridge, however, was the only time I wished for death, just simply to take me out of the maelstrom of suffering that we found ourselves in. The shell fire, 
was like nothing I'd ever experienced. It was relentless, hour after hour, day after day. The weather was appalling, and this added to our already troubled lot. We were cold, we were wet, and we hadn't had a hot meal for five days. We'd run out of food, but worst of all, we'd also run out of cigarettes and cigars. When we were able, with the brief respite in the shelling, we raided the pockets of the dead. A scrap of bread crust here, a half-eaten bit of corn there. You cannot imagine what luxury this was. The accuracy of the shell fire was unending. It seemed that every shell fired by the enemy hit with pinpoint accuracy. The wire in front of our position was shredded and many casualties were caused by the lethal red-hot shards of barbs. Faces were ripped open, eyes were gouged out and necks were sliced open. The terrible thing about shelling was one never knew if one would be hit. In one sense, maybe that was a blessing. It's all fate under such circumstances. One had only two inevitable outcomes. You would either live or you would die. It was as simple as that. One afternoon, I was in a party of 17, heading to an observation post when after a brief respite, the enemy launched fire and brimstone upon us again. The shelling was heavier than at any other time and the whole ground was shaking and vibrating as if some mad serpent had been unceremoniously woken up and was seeking vengeance on us for disturbing his slumber. A shell landed in front of our party and every man was either killed or wounded apart from me. To this day, I do not know how I escaped unscathed. The others were reduced to mere scraps of humanity. The sides of the trench were hung with the remnants of men. An arm twitched on the floor of the trench. One man was cut in two from his head to his groin like a fish being filleted and a helmet with a head still in it rolled down the side of the trench. I was knocked unconscious by a shell two days later but once again I escaped uninjured. My teeth hurt for three years after this explosion and my hearing never recovered properly. I can still taste the mud and explosive in my mouth to this day. I served for four years in the war. I served at Ypres, at Aubers and Verdun, but I never experienced anything as bad as that week. Death would have been a blessing. It was, without question, the worst week I had in the entire war. I hope you've enjoyed this latest episode of Footsteps of the Fallen with me, battlefield researcher, historian and writer Matt Dixon. And if you'd like to keep updated with what we are up to and what's happening, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter where you can find us at uh, footsteps underscore pod or you can have a look on our Instagram feed which is footsteps of the fallen blog you'll find on Instagram. Uh, We've also got obviously our website which you can find uh, everything to do with the podcast and pictures and uh, a blog and things like that and you can find that at footstepsofthefallen.com and if you have enjoyed what you are listening to and would like to help support the creative process then please don't uh, hesitate to do so if you go to our website footstepsthefallen.com and look at the page marked support us you can either head to buymeacoffee.com forward slash footsteps pod and make a donation there or you can go to patreon.com footsteps of the fallen and uh, any help or assistance that you may be able to provide would be gratefully received so all it leaves me now to do is to bid you farewell and thank you very much for your company as we continued our journey walking in the footsteps of the fallen it's been a pleasure to have your company thank you and goodbye